Hi, and welcome to Follow Baptist Church's weekly message podcast. My name's Luke Williams, and I'm the lead pastor, and we're thrilled to have you joining us. We hope the message today inspires you and helps you follow Jesus in your community for His glory. Here's the message. When we first planted Follow, we launched a vision video, which is still on our website. And if you watch it, you'll see a bright-eyed young man with a big vision and a cool haircut. And if you're watching it this week and you're wondering who that person is, it's the same grey-bearded, bald-headed man that stands before you. The video is what you look like before you plant a church. This is what you look like four and a half years later, just in case you're wondering. On the video, I shared about the importance of gathering together and also being a people who scatter. And I use the analogy of our church being like a divine petrol station when we gather together, that we come here together on a Sunday morning and we're filled up as we open the Word, as we pray together, as we have fellowship, as we share that time together. It's like we're filled up so that we can go into our week and live that week on mission. And if we're doing that well and we're doing that faithfully, by the end of the week, we're probably going to be a little bit tired, a little bit empty. And so we come back and we gather together again and we're filled up afresh again so that we can then go again and be on mission. And I think it was a fairly good analogy, but I heard an even better one recently. A couple of weeks ago, Leanne, Adam and I were at a three-day intensive on community engagement. And the guy presenting there, American guy, used the example of a huddle at a football game. He uh, was coming from America, he came and he watched these AFL games and he, he noticed the huddle that happened at quarter time and, and half time and three quarter time and, and we all know what happens. Before a game, uh, the coaches get together and the team gets together and they come up with a game plan. What are we going to do this week to win this particular game against this particular team? And then they run out onto the field at the start of the game and the siren goes and for the first quarter they do everything they can to win. They, they run, they tackle, they chase. Hopefully they kick a few goals and then they're pretty exhausted by the time the siren goes and it's quarter time. And so at quarter time they they gather together as a team. I don't know what they'll do these days. Maybe they'll sort of gather apart a little bit. But usually they gather together and they huddle in and and the coach will share, you know, what's going on. Maybe make some adjustments if they're not winning. And if they're winning, there'll be a lot of encouragement, a lot of backslapping. Well done, keep it up. Come on, we can win this. And, And they'll make a few adjustments and then the siren will go and they'll go out for the second quarter. And that'll happen again at halftime, and it'll happen again at three-quarter time. And at the end of the game, they'll huddle together again, and they'll talk about you know, what went well, and, and what didn't go well, and why they won, or why they lost. And being a St Kilda supporter, it's usually the second one, why they lost again, and why they've done it for 145 years, that kind of thing. But the huddle's really important. Because it refocuses the players, it encourages one another. It's really important to huddle together. But there's no kid in the history of the world that grows up dreaming about playing football because they want to be in the huddle. They dream about what they get to do on the field. Can you imagine if there was an AFL footballer who finally made it and they got drafted to their favourite team and they, they came to the first week and they went to the huddle and they got all revved up and the team was there and it's like, come on, we can do this. And then all the team runs out onto the field and he just walks back to the interchange bench and he or she these days, back to the interchange bench and they just sit there and watch their team play. And then they do it again the second quarter and the third quarter and they do that for their whole career. That would be absolutely crazy, wouldn't it? Absolutely crazy. And yet, it seems to me that a large percentage of churchgoers are just like that. Gather at church on the weekend, we hear the plans God has. We worship, we encourage one another. We may even decide to make some changes in our life. But when we leave the building... We don't actually participate in the mission field that exists 
outside the four walls of the church all around us. And that's a big challenge for us to be those people that aren't like that. The theme for our year this year is to bloom where you're planted. And within that theme, we're up to week three of a series called Work, Rest and Play. This is week three. In the first three weeks, we're exploring the topic of work and how we can bloom where we're planted in the work that we do. As I said last week, the average person in their lifetime will spend about 90,240 hours of their life working. It's exciting, isn't it? And so if we fail to see our work as perhaps the greatest opportunity for mission that we have, then that's a lot of time sitting on the interchange bench. Last week we talked about being a faithful presence in our world, and if you missed it, we defined a faithful presence as somebody who obediently represents God's character in the place that they are planted. And so to be a faithful presence in your workplace is to obediently represent God's character in that workplace where you are planted. Last week I used the example of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I used their example because they were the first humans who were given the responsibility of being a faithful presence in the place God had planted them. In their garden, their job was to cultivate and care for that space that they found themselves in, in a way that would bring glory to God as they represented his character to the world around them. Now, unfortunately, most of us know how that story ended. They chose not to do that. Instead, they rebelled against God and they decided, we want to do things our own way. As I said last week, there were consequences for those actions. And the end result of what they did was that they were expelled from the garden. This was tragic for two main reasons. First of all, the garden was their place of work. So they're now expelled from that place of work. But secondly, it was the place where they experienced the presence of God. And so after being expelled from that place... They no longer enjoyed their work with God, but instead were toiling alone, and they were disconnected from their purpose in work, which was now hard and full of thorns and thistles, rather than being the life-giving activity it was designed to be in the garden. Now, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus has rescued us from that brokenness. He has brought us back into relationship with God the Father by dying in our place and forgiving our sin And now we now once again have access to the presence of our Heavenly Father. It's a wonderful thing to have access to His presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the work of the Holy Spirit who is with us, but He's also in us. And so we now have access to His presence. And not only that, we're now invited back to join Him in His great redemptive plan for humanity. And so just as Adam and Eve enjoyed working with God in the garden... In Christ, you and I are once again his co-workers and he calls you and me to be a faithful presence everywhere we go in everything we do in order to represent Jesus in both our actions and our words. And so our 90,240 hours of work are never without purpose because whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. And so the question becomes, how? How do we live as a faithful presence in our current culture, in a postmodern world, how can we be those faithful people? Well, the last two weeks, we've presented a theological framework for our work, but I promised today that we'd get super practical in how to live it out. And so to do this though this morning, I want to introduce you to a strategy that has been adopted by many Christians around the world, 
And the beauty of this strategy is the simplicity of it. To live this out, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be the world's greatest evangelist. You don't even need to add another activity to your already busy schedule. To live out this strategy, all you need to do is to see the time and spaces you currently have as an opportunity to represent Jesus and then step out in faith with an expectation that God is inviting you into his great mission for the world in the everyday activity of your life. The rhythm I want to introduce you to today is the rhythm of BLESS, which can be explained by the following acronym. B is begin with prayer. L is to listen. E is to eat, my personal favourite. S is to serve, and the second S is to share your story. A very simple rhythm, a rhythm that could change your life. A moment ago I said it was a strategy, but what it really is is an invitation to practice the rhythms of Jesus' life, which he modelled for us while he was here on earth. What would Jesus do? Well, he blessed the world around him through these regular rhythms of life. And so first of all, we need to begin with prayer. Are you all with me this morning? Excellent. Begin with prayer. Adam and Eve had a mission in the garden to cultivate and care for that space in a way that God's character would be revealed to the world. And if our mission is the same in the places that God plants us, then we need to understand this. Nothing will cultivate the culture in our workplaces more than the power of prayer. Let me say that again. Nothing will cultivate the culture in our workplaces more than prayer. This is why the Rhythm of Bless teaches us that we must begin with prayer. One verse that's really spoken to me this year is in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3. And it says, In the morning, this is King David speaking, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. Now, most of us would know a bit about King David. He did some pretty awful things that we'd never want to imitate. But in a lot of ways, he was a wonderful king. And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. And as such, I think prayer was a vital daily practice of his life. And I think this prayer, this verse here, really reveals two important aspects of his prayer life. The first one is this, that he started every day with prayer. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you. It's very hard for anybody to hear you if you don't first speak. And so King David had a regular rhythm. Every morning he'd wake up, and the first thing he did was to pray. And it sounds so incredibly simple, doesn't it? Yeah, of course we should pray first thing in the morning. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we were to practice this, it could actually be revolutionary in our life. Because so often the first thing we do is we pick up our phone. Phone goes off, the alarm goes off, we, we pick it up. And the minute we look at that text message or that Facebook post, what we've done is we've allowed that device to shape our mood for the day. So often our lives are being shaped by our devices. On the 19th of April this year, we are having a technology panel here at church because I think technology is shaping our lives and relationships in ways that we're not even fully aware of yet. Dealing with technology is one of the most pressing discipleship deficits we currently have in the church. Ironically, 
There is a possibility we will be watching it from our lounge rooms on our phones because of the coronavirus. <laughs> Pros and cons. So often our phones are shaping our lives. And so blessed can be life-changing for us because it changes our daily rhythm from starting with phones and Facebook to prayer and petition, and that one step could completely change your day and potentially change your life. Second implication of David's prayer is that when he prayed, he prayed with expectation that God would listen and act according to his will. It said, I lay my request before you and I wait expectantly. I wait expectantly. I'm expecting God to respond in some way. I love what James 1.6 says. It says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. David's prayer at the start of every day was not a token gesture. It was not a token prayer or a rush prayer. What we're reading about is a proactive, powerful, day-shaping prayer full of faith and expectation. And the question I have for us is this. When's the last time our day began like that? Can you see how prayer could start to mould our expectation in incredible ways as we prepare ourselves to step into one of the greatest mission fields we've ever been blessed with? We call it work. When Jesus was here on earth, we know that Jesus was fully God. And so we could easily think, well, Jesus could just click his fingers and things would happen because, you know, he's fully God. But we also know that Jesus was not just fully God, but he was also fully man. And as a man, in his life over and over again, he modelled to us how important prayer was. I love this verse that says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We're so disconnected, we very rarely do this. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. As he went and prayed, he listened to what his father wanted him to do. And then he obediently stepped out from that place of prayer and rest and he did all that his father asked him to do. Jesus stepped out of rest and prayer into places of ministry. Therefore, his mission was birthed from intimacy with his father. And the question I have in my mind is if Jesus needed to pray to hear his father's voice, how much more do you and I need to pray to hear his voice? And I wonder how many things never change in our workplaces? How many relationships could be healed? How many problems could be solved if each of us got serious about the power of prayer? Because I believe there are opportunities waiting in every workplace represented in this place today that can be found on the other side of faithful, expectant prayer. How will we know what God is wanting us to do or to say or to be if we don't first pray and hear his voice? But to be honest, I find prayer difficult. Anyone else find prayer difficult? Three of us. The rest of you are very holy. We can learn from you. Let me sit at your feet. Tell me all your secrets. Most of us find prayer difficult, right? I want to encourage you in a strange way today and say that you're not the only one. You might remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Jesus' death was imminent. He knew that he was about to go to the cross. And so he goes to the garden to pray and he invites his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, to come with him at what was the hardest time of his life. How do we know it was so difficult? Because these are the words he spoke. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says to these three friends, stay here and keep watch with me. And so he leaves the disciples there to pray and he goes off to another spot to pray alone. And when he comes back, instead of finding these faithful friends contending in passionate prayer, they are sound asleep. There are some people in this congregation that often fall asleep when I'm preaching. This point's for you. Jesus comes back. He says to Peter, couldn't you men just keep watch for me for one hour, just watch and pray? He goes away again. He comes back. And guess what happens? You snooze and you lose. They're snoozing again. And so he goes away a third time. And you would think after the second time, Peter would kind of rally the troops. You know, like splash some water in your eyes, guys. You can't hold your eyes open. We're going to do this. We're going to stand with Jesus. Come on, we're going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, like on the couch when you're watching a movie. Jesus comes back and for the third time they're sound asleep and we read an account like this and we go, you idiots! Until we kind of realise it's like seeing our reflection in the mirror. And we're often no, no different at all. You know, in the morning you start to pray and so easily distracted by our phone or our to-do list or our super coach team. We say, dear Lord, I just bring this day before you and the phone beeps. We pick it up and there's a Facebook notification and there's a text message and your start, mind starts to wander to your super coach squad and which player will I trade in and which player will I trade out. I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about other people. And before you know it, you think, oh, strike. Oh, it's time for work. Thank you, Jesus. And you walk out the door and go to work. Has anyone else prayed a prayer like that before? I know I do it on a regular basis. I wonder if you ever wondered why prayer is so difficult. Let me tell you why I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult because the devil is terrified when we pray and so he'll do anything he possibly can to distract us from praying. How do I know that he's terrified? Well, James 5.16 says the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and it's effective. And so it would make sense that the devil would want to do anything he can to distract you from prayer. So how do we put things in place? Maybe we plug our phone in another room. We use a different alarm clock. You know one of those old ones that you didn't ring people on? And we could use one of those and the phone's not in the room and we don't wake up distracted and we can spend that time praying. It's so important that we craft that time in our lives to be faithful in prayer. If prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, I think it means that prayer is one of the most valuable and yet underutilized weapons we have in spiritual warfare and mission. How many opportunities are we missing every week in our workplaces simply because we don't pray? Do you want to be one of God's co-workers in the most exciting mission the world's ever seen to bring redemption to the world around us? Well, then begin with prayer. Second thing is to listen. I wonder, are you a good listener? Sorry, you didn't hear me? Let me ask again. Are you a good listener? The ironic thing about that question is that the people who are good listeners heard the question the first time, and those of you who aren't good listeners are probably thinking, what did I miss? What did he say? 
Let me say it again. Are you a good listener? Good song. He's an angel. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, do we listen well to the people around us? Probably all known someone who doesn't really listen. Wives, stop nudging your husbands. It's called selective hearing. It's a medical condition. (laughs) You know those sort of people when you're talking and they're always kind of looking over your shoulder at someone else who's obviously a lot more interesting than you are? Maybe it's the type of person that speaks right over the top of you when you're trying to talk. They never listen because they're always talking over the top of you. Let me tell you, people like that always struggle to make friends because they're no fun to be around. But not only will they struggle to make friends, but they will rarely ever be a faithful presence in the places God has put them. Because like with Adam and Eve, God is calling us to be a faithful presence in the spaces we find ourselves. But just as Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden by the things they did, we too can find ourselves ejected from being a faithful presence by the things we do in our workplaces where God has planted us. And so we're called to be a faithful presence. But sometimes it's our ideology that ejects us from being a faithful presence. So important to have your convictions. So important to be a person who stands on the truth, that loves the word of God. But if we force our views on people without respecting them and we try and ram it down their throats, we will put up walls and we will create barriers that will stop us from being a faithful presence in our workplace. Sometimes it's apathy. We go to work with that apathy where we see it as an obligation and and not an opportunity. And we go through the day and... We go through the motions and we miss the circumstances around us that are right in front of us because we just want to get through the day. Apathy can eject us from being a faithful presence. Sometimes it's distraction. We're too busy in our own little world and we're head down and bum up, busy, busy, busy. If we're like that in our workplace, we won't be a faithful presence. Sometimes it's poor work ethic. Have you ever heard someone talk about a lovable slacker? Let me tell you something about a lovable slacker. Lovable slackers don't stay lovable very long. They just become annoying, irritating slackers. And so if you're a slacker in your workplace, let God convict you this morning that whatever we do, we serve Jesus. And so we need to do it with all of our heart because our work ethic will either commend our faith to the people around us or or it will eject us from faithful presence. So work hard. Be faithful in your work. Sometimes it's ambition. You've got a selfish outlook about life where it's all about me and advancing my career opportunity and we rarely fail to care about anyone else. That will eject us from faithful presence. But let me tell you the one thing that will eject you from faithful presence quicker than anything else. It's a failure to listen. Failure to listen will eject you from faithful presence quicker than anything else will. James chapter 1 verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. What should we do when the Bible says take note of this? Grab out your pens, get out your phones. You might want to write it down, take note of this. This is what it says, right? Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Let's say this together this morning. Repeat after me. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. One more time. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Okay, another activity. Let's do this. Two ears, say it. One mouth. Say it again. Two ears, one mouth. Now let's put it all together, all right? Ready? Quick to listen? Tricked you. (laughs) Quick to listen? 
Slow to speak. Two ears. One mouth. Use them in that ratio. Use them in that ratio. Christians for many years have been quick to speak and sometimes a lot slower to listen. Australia was for many years referred to as a Christian country and we were at the centre of our society. From that privileged position, we were quick to speak and slow to listen. Quick to tell people what they should believe. Quick to be the moral police. We do it from our soapboxes and from a place of prominence. We've been the majority. We've been in power. We've been the loudest voice. We've had the last word. Guess what, church? That's no longer the reality we live in. And it wasn't necessarily healthy or, happy or, or helpful when it was. When I was younger, people often listened because Christians were well-respected. Christians were a key part of every community. The pastor was seen as a pillar in their society. Well, things have changed. Sexual abuse scandals, power-driven manipulative leadership, pastors with their private jets, hypocrisy, judgmental attitudes have dwindled away the credibility and the respect that Christians once held. And at the same time, all that's been going on, our world has changed completely. I saw a stark example of this recently. We're away with the elders on our retreat at the start of the year at a place called Marysville. Many, would you, many of you would know that Marysville on Black Saturday burnt to the ground in about 13 minutes. And it's been rebuilt. It's a beautiful little township. And on the last night, we were sitting there on a deck at a restaurant overlooking the township of Marysville. And this whole place has been rebuilt. And as I looked at it, I realized that every single thing in that town had been rebuilt except one thing. The church. It's the only thing that has not been rebuilt in that township. 50 years ago, it would have been the first thing rebuilt. The highest priority, a non-negotiable part of every town, and now it's seen more as an unnecessary relic of a world that once was. The world has changed, church, and it is changing rapidly, and many Christians have not made the adjustments in order to reach the world as it now is. And if we as a church don't continue to change, we will have no impact on this community whatsoever because they're not coming to us. We must go to them. I heard someone say recently that we're in the midst of another reformation. And I agree. Not necessarily a theological reformation, although I think sometimes that's important as well. But it's a reformation of posture and practice. We need to reform the way we behave as Christians. And part of that posture and practice is reclaiming the forgotten art of listening. Stephen Covey in his classic book, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person, says that most people listen not with the intent to understand, they listen with the intent to reply. If we're going to bless our workplaces, we need to really commit ourselves to listening. I think Jesus was a great listener. He listened to the religious leaders of the day. He listened to the average person on the street. He also listened to those who didn't have a voice. The women, the woman with the issue of blood, the leper, the tax collector. Jesus listened to those who nobody else noticed or acknowledged. And I wonder to myself, how many people in our workplaces are just waiting for someone to listen? It's amazing what you learn about people when you take the time to listen. You hear their dreams and desires for the future. You get to know their interests. You start to understand some of their struggles and their pain. You learn about their family life and their relationships. You start to discover what questions they are asking about life. But let me tell you something. You learn 0% of that stuff when you are talking. You learn it all when you're listening. 
Those things are only discovered through listening. And so if we learn to listen twice as much as we speak, God will open opportunities we never thought imaginable to share the love of Jesus in people's lives in the 90,240 hours we spend in our workplace. And so we need to begin with prayer, we need to listen, and thirdly, we need to eat. Are you ready for good news this morning? No, okay, I won't say it. (laughs) Eating is one of the greatest missional practices we have because everybody loves to eat. Well, nearly everybody. One of our daughters once dated a guy who was not my favourite person, and he used to slink over to our house at mealtime and he used to watch us eat our family meal. And we'd invite him to join us, and he would never enjoy, never join us. And so I took him out for coffee one day, and I said, it'd be really good if you came and ate with the family when you come over. And he looked at me, and in all seriousness, this is what he said. He said, I'm just not the type of person who eats. <laughs> I felt this wave of anger sweep over me, <laughs> followed by a wave of relief as I started to do the mass, and I thought, people can only survive without food for about three weeks. <laughs> This is a temporary problem. It's not very Christ-like. I have repented. Just telling you the first thing that came into my mind at the moment. I've repented. That boy is gone. He didn't die. (laughs) Evidently, he does actually eat, and he's still alive and well. But we don't have to see him anymore, so it's a (laughs) win-win. I feel like I need to repent again. Sorry, Lord. Everyone in the history of humanity loves to eat except for that kid. Right? And so you're not that kid. So you love to eat. Food in Australia and right around the world is a massive part of our culture. It's a universal language. When Jesus walked on this earth, he loved to eat. How do I know that? Well, he was accused of being a drunken and a glutton. Let me tell you, no one accuses you of being a glutton unless you eat a lot of food. Jesus was the original foodie. He loved good food. He looked for every opportunity, every excuse to gather people around food. And many of the key moments in his life and ministry happened when people gathered around food. Whether it was turning water into wine at a wedding feast or feeding the 5,000 or challenging the Pharisees or caring for the prostitutes or eating the Last Supper with his disciples, he saw food as the great connector. N.T. Wright says this. He says, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. There's this beautiful moment tucked away at the very end of John's Gospel. It's kind of like a postscript to the resurrection. And it's a moment between Peter and Jesus. Many of us would know that Peter was a key disciple and a close friend of Jesus. But when Jesus was arrested, Peter quickly denied him three times. He denied he even knew him at all. So you can imagine Jesus would have felt pretty hurt and betrayed and let down by this man that was meant to be a close friend. But I love that Jesus even to Peter at that time, showed extraordinary love towards him. The moment I'm referring to happened after the resurrection and Jesus and Peter had not yet discussed what had happened with Peter's denial. You know that feeling when you've done something wrong, you've hurt someone and you see them for the first time and you don't know how they're going to react and you don't really know what you're going to say and it's all a bit awkward? Well, this is that moment for Peter after he denied Jesus. He must have been thinking, how is Jesus going to treat me? How will he react? Will he ignore me? Will he rebuke me? Will he hear something over the loudspeaker? (laughs) Peter, come and see me in the boardroom. We need to talk. Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. Instead, he says this. He says, come and have breakfast. 
You see, food's a great connector. It breaks down barriers. It opens up relationships. It provides an opportunity for conversation. This is why we meet people in cafes. We go for a coffee. We don't say, come and meet in my lounge room very often anymore because most people connect around coffee in a cafe, and so we invite people to come out for a coffee. It provides a great opportunity for conversation. And so how is this relevant in our workplaces? Well, in our workplaces, we have these natural break times in most workplaces. It's morning tea, it's lunch, it's afternoon tea. Not only do we have designated breaks, but we have common areas. It might be a table, it might be an area on a building site, a lunchroom, a staff area, a courtyard. It could be a local cafe or a takeaway place next to your work. And when it comes to these natural break times, I call them gold time for relationships. Could it be possible that these natural break times in our days and these common meeting spots present the single biggest opportunity you have to bloom where you're planted at work by representing Jesus around food in relationships? You see, we often see these times as a time to jump on Facebook or to call home or to sit in the car, but if we don't see these times as gold time for relationships, we are missing massive opportunities to build relationship and be a faithful presence amongst the people we work with. Food is the great connector. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we need to begin with prayer. We need to listen, we need to eat, and next we need to serve. And if you want people to see Jesus in you, perhaps the most powerful way to do that in your workplace is through serving. Many workplaces are filled with ambitious people. Lots of people trying to climb the corporate ladder, often by stepping on other people's heads. There are people that are only concerned with their own job and what they need to get done, and they have no regard for what others need to do. Many people are looking for position, prominence, and power. And so how can we be a faithful presence in a culture like that? Well, I think we can be a faithful presence by ministering in the opposite spirit. If work was an elevator, most people are wanting to go up. How would we stand out? By going down. You and I are part of a countercultural, inside-out, upside-down kingdom. The way up in the kingdom is down. Jesus said that people in the world, they want to lord it over others, but he says, not so with you. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He says he will exalt the humble, but he will humble the proud. Proverbs 18, 16 is one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. It says, a gift opens up the way for the giver and ushers them into the presence of of the great. I love that verse. It follows since we've started, the greatest gift we've been able to offer people in our community is the gift of serving. And as we've served our community, it's opened up opportunities to impact people's lives in ways that never would have existed if we came to be served rather than to serve. Serving is one of the greatest gifts we have to offer people. And as we give the gift of service, it ushers us into the presence of the great, who is Jesus himself, because service is where you will find Jesus. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want to encourage you in your workplace to be the greatest servant in that place, to be the person who cares for others' needs above yourself. Be the greatest encourager. Make people a coffee clean the dishes, pick up people's papers from the photocopier, go the extra mile for people you work with, serve people by loving them in an extravagant way, even those people who are difficult. Jesus says, love your enemies, 
Pray for those, even those who persecute you. Help create a culture of serving in your workplace. If you want to be a faithful presence in your workplace, turn selfishness into service. Make a decision to be the greatest servant because you're part of an upside-down kingdom whose king came to serve. And so we should serve. Finally, we should share our story, both our personal story, our journey in life, but also the story of the gospel. A few years ago at the church I was at, they had a so-called evangelist come from overseas and run some meetings on evangelism. He was there to train people on how to do evangelism. And this particular evangelist, well-known right around the world, had written his own little tract with some special words on it about, you know, whether you're a Christian or not and what you need to read to people. And his training was, was this. Take this little tract that could have said abracadabra, but it said some other words about Jesus. And he said, take this into your community. You don't even have to make eye contact. Just walk up to people with the tract, read it word for word. You don't even have to memorize it. Just word for word and people will come to know Jesus. At the end of the meeting, a whole bunch of gullible people did that. They went to local Maccas. They went into the street. And they, they just went up and they just had this little tract and they just read it word for word to the person in front of them. And you might be unsurprised to hear that no one was saved. But there were a lot of people that were annoyed as they were accosted by a person reading an impersonal script about something they may not have even heard about before. This was his training for evangelism. And the most common response was that people were offended and annoyed and perhaps were now further away from the kingdom than they were before they had that rude encounter. And don't get me wrong, there are some very gifted evangelists who God uses in that type of evangelism, and they're very effective. But if we're honest, the majority of us are not gifted or comfortable with that sort of ministry. And so if that's all we think of when we think of evangelism, most of the church will never do it. Not all of us are evangelists, but all of us are called to do the work of evangelism. You'll notice in the blessed principle that it's at the very end. Sharing your story is the last thing. I think it's quite deliberate. I love what 1 Peter 3 says. It says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Who to? To everyone who asks. For you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is why I love the blessed rhythm. Because if you're doing the other four things well, then the opportunity to share your story will come because people will see something different in you and they will actually ask what you believe and why you believe it. If you do those four things well, opportunities will come. They may come in a week, they may come in a month, they may come in a day, they may come in years, but if you're faithful in beginning with prayer, listening, eating, serving, those opportunities will come. That's why Red Frogs is such an amazing ministry. Saturated in prayer. They begin with prayer every day, saturated in prayer. They go into the streets and they listen to people at an important time of their life. They eat with them with red frogs, with bottles of water, with pancake breakfast the next morning. They serve in incredible ways and then they share their story with those who ask. What are you here for? Do you get paid to be here? No. We're here because we're representing Jesus. Now I have a next door neighbour. I think she's in her 60s. I don't like to guess. But I think she's in her 60s. She has a husband who is non-communicative. He had a heart attack and a stroke, and he can no longer speak. She works, and she cares for her husband. She's a lovely person. We don't see her very often because most of her time is at work or caring for her husband. But a couple of weeks ago, 
after the Aldi run that we do each Monday, there were a bunch of flowers in the shed that we got from Aldi. And I thought of her when I saw those flowers there, and I grabbed a, a bunch of them, and I took them home, and I thought that night I'll go and deliver them to her, just to say that, you know, we appreciate you and love you, and we're here to help with anything you may need. So I went over there at night, and I knocked on the door, and I just heard the little dog yapping, and waited for about 30 seconds, and no one came. And so I jammed the flowers in between the handle and the door jam. I thought, she'll get them when she gets home. I turned around, and I walked away as the door opened, and the flowers fell to the ground. And she looked at them, and then she looked at me, and she said, what, what's this? And I said, oh, I just got some flowers today, and I was thinking of you, so I thought I'd drop them off. And she teared up, and she said to me, you don't know how much that means. I've had such a difficult week, and just that someone would think of me means so much. And so we chatted for a few minutes, and then I went home, and then the next couple of days I needed to mow the front nature strip. For the last five years, I have no, I've mowed her nature strip every time I do mine. Up until this week, she's never, ever mentioned it. Never once has she mentioned it. And I don't care because I don't do it to be thanked, but I always thought it was a bit strange that she must walk out and go, gee, my lawn never grows. <laughs> oh, this looks great. These people got lawnmowers for. This is amazing grass. Some kind of grass we all want, right? Well, this week I was mowing my nature strip and then I wanted to mow hers and for the first time ever she ran out and she said, oh, hey, I thought I heard someone out here. I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing my nature strip. I think the only reason she was out there is because of the flowers a few days earlier. And she hovered around as I was doing the nature strip and I stopped to turn the mower off and I noticed that she wanted to have a chat. I spent the next 45 minutes chatting to her. She opened up to me about her husband, the heart attack he had and the stroke he had, which means he can't communicate. She let me know that her son was diagnosed with leukemia on the same day and how he's gone through this journey of leukemia and he's come out the other side. And she knows our story that Kim had open heart surgery on the day that Lenny was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so there was this commonality there as we shared about it. And she was talking about how hard life can be. And, and she said to me, how do you guys actually manage with all the stuff you've got to do? And, and I was able to talk about God and how in, in our lives we, we trust in God and he gives us the strength we need to, to get through all the things that we need to do. It was an awesome moment that was five years in the making. Five years of mowing lawns finally led to an opportunity to share the story. This is where the blessed rhythm is so powerful because if we do the first well, four well, the opportunities to share the story will come. Sometimes they'll come as first thing. Sometimes people will just randomly ask you, are you a Christian? What do you believe? That's awesome. But so often these days evangelism is, is, is a long game. It's not on a soapbox anymore. It's about investing long-term in relationship and outside of your family, the people you spend the most time with in your life is the people you work with. And so invest in relationship. I think the big change from Christendom to a post-Christian culture when it comes to evangelism has got to be from the soapbox to shared life. Blessed rhythm is not just a strategy. It's an invitation to follow the rhythms of Jesus' life in our world today. It's all about seeing the places God has planted you in as an opportunity to bloom where you're planted. It's about sharing life with others. It's about redeeming the 90,240 hours of work and using it as an opportunity to represent Jesus in the place he's put you. How do we do it? Well, we begin with prayer. Second, we listen to those around us. Thirdly, we eat with people. Fourth, we serve like Jesus. And fifthly, we share our story with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for the blessing of work, the opportunity you give us to be in a workplace, to earn money, 
to share life with people, the vast majority, most of the time, are people that don't know you. So, Lord, I pray that we would never compartmentalize our life to see church as our time of worship and spiritual stuff and then the rest of the week just as life and then we come back on Sunday for the spiritual stuff again. But, Lord, I pray that we would see every moment as an opportunity to represent you, that we would be a faithful presence in our family, in our sporting clubs, and particularly in our workplaces, Lord. Help us to get off the interchange bench, to step onto the mission field, to see people come to know you. Lord, we're so thankful for our work. We're even more thankful for the gospel. We thank you that you've saved us from that place of brokenness where we didn't know you. Our sin had separated us from you. And yet on the cross, you took our sin upon yourself and it was nailed to the cross with you. And we accept what you did for us, Lord. Your declaration over the sin in our lives is that it's finished, that we are now righteous, that we are now forgiven, that we are once again called the children of God. Nothing can separate us from that love. Lord, I pray as we are gripped afresh this morning by the the truth of that gospel message, that you would fill our hearts with an urgency to share it with others. I pray that we would look at the rhythms of your life and each day make a decision to bless people in the way that we live our lives. Just while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I don't do this every week, but this morning I feel challenged, even though it's a smaller group of people here today, to just ask the question for you this morning. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Maybe you have, but you've wandered away, and today God's speaking to you, and you need to come back to him. You need to accept him again, what he's done for you. Or maybe you've never accepted him before in your life. Well, The only hope we have of salvation, the only way that we can have a hope in the midst of a coronavirus outbreak, is that we know that we have a security in Christ who has guaranteed us an eternal future with him. There's nobody and there is nothing that can ever snatch that away from us. And so we stand in the security and the confidence of Jesus. And this morning, if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Saviour, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if God's speaking to you right now, if the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart, I want you to respond by just lifting your hands. And I'd just love to speak to you after the service and pray for you. This could be the most important moment of your life. For me it was, the moment I gave my life to Jesus. Changed my life, put me on a different track forever. I'm going to ask one more time, I don't want to delay it. But is there anybody here, and you don't know with 100% confidence that you're in relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to just lift your hand now. So that's me. Lord, I just pray for every person in this room and I, I trust that each person here knows you, but if they don't and they haven't lifted their hand today, maybe they're too worried to or they're not at that place yet, Lord, I pray that you keep working in their heart through your Holy Spirit, that today would be another step towards you and that you would reveal yourself to them in life-changing ways. Thank you for everything we've discussed today. We thank you for your goodness even in our world, in the midst of what's going on. Help us to have our confidence in you, our trust in you as we move forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our weekly message. If you're in the southeast area of Melbourne, we'd love for you to join us at our Sunday morning service. All the details can be found on our website at follow.church or you can find us on social media at Follow Baptist Church.